And so in God's plan of redemption, he is pursuing his pleasure. And oh, by the way, his pleasure leads to our good. That's part of his nature. It's part of the kind of God he is. He does this for his pleasure. He redeems us for his pleasure. I want you to stop and think about what that means for you. What that means for you is that God, the God who knew all things before time even began, the God who created everything that exists, the God who is beyond our imagine, what this means for you is that God wants you to be with him. Maybe that sounds too simple to you, but I think if you stop and think about it, it really can change your perspective on some things going on in your life. God wants you to be with him. That's why he created you. And that's why he formed this plan of redemption before you were even born. That's why he comes after you with the gospel of grace because he wants you to be with him. It brings him joy. Don't you love to be around? This is why people buy dogs. Because we, we, there aren't a lot of people in the world that really get excited when we come around. There aren't enough. There, there just isn't enough response and feedback to our presence that, that is joyous. And so we get dogs because dogs always get excited when people come around. Imagine that God gets excited at the thought of being with you forever. That blows my mind. And for some, for, for some people, you, you literally can't believe it. You can't accept it as true. Because there haven't been a lot of people in your life who are excited that you are around. For some of you, from the time you can remember, people didn't want you around. Maybe even your parents Maybe your teachers didn't like you. Maybe as you grew up, all of the adults in your life, for whatever reason, didn't seem to want you there. And that forms how you see yourself, and that forms how you view the world. And we need to combat that negative view of ourselves with the view that God wants us to be with him. That's why he created us. That's why he sent Jesus To save you from your sins. So that you could be with him. It is for his pleasure. He is doing this because it brings him joy. We also see in these first couple of verses. A couple other things I want to point out in verse 4. It says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. One of the things we didn't talk a lot about when we looked at the first two verses was that Paul addresses the, the believers in Ephesus as faithful saints. And here we see in verse 4 that he refers to them as holy and blameless before God. And we talk, we've talked about this a little bit before, so I don't want to repeat it too much. But if God declares you as holy and blameless, you are holy and blameless. Because it's only his judgment that matters. Tupac was right. Only God can judge me. He had it right. He just didn't understand how God judges. God judges by those who are in Christ Jesus. He judges us according to what Jesus has done for us. 
If Jesus lived a righteous life and we believe in him, then he applies that to our account. If Jesus died to pay the penalty for sins and we believe in him, he applies that to our account. He judges us according to what Jesus has done. And so he declares all believers as holy and blameless before him. In his court of law, we are not guilty. So much so that Paul refers to the Christians at Ephesus as faithful saints. Now, were they saints in the sense that you and I generally think of saints being? Let let me define that because there are a couple of different ways that we can think of saints. Normally, when we, when we say somebody is a saint, we are either being sarcastic or we truly think that they have very morally upright character. Another way that we have used that phrase is to infer sainthood upon people who have long since passed away. But the biblical sense of the word saint is applied to every believer. That in Jesus Christ, we are declared as saints. We are declared faithful and just and righteous and holy and blameless before God. And so, when we think of the fact that God declares us as saints and he wants us to be with him, we should allow those types of thoughts about the way God views us start to influence the way we view ourselves. If all we do is focus on maybe the things that other people have told us about us, or all we do is focus on the negative thoughts that we have about ourselves, we are, we are taking away from God's plan to redeem us. We are taking away from the work that he is doing in us. He has declared us righteous. And if he has declared us righteous then who, who can declare otherwise? Who can say that he is wrong? He has done this in Jesus Christ. And so that leads to the next thing that you'll see on your handout, the next set of blanks to fill in. says that God's plan of redemption includes the forgiveness of our sins. This is foundational. It's so foundational to understanding the gospel that we understand that what God has done in his plan of redemption, what God has done in sending his son to die in our place, is that he has secured for us the forgiveness of our sins. And he does this through his blood. It says in verses, I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. There's that, there it is again. It's God working for his pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. God's plan of redemption includes the forgiveness of our sins, Through his blood is what we're told here. Through his blood. You know, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now that's a, that's a, can be, depending on your perspective, can be an upsetting thought. Why do, why do things or people need to die in order for the forgiveness of sins to occur? And I think, what we need to understand is the magnitude of our sin against the holy and righteous God. The magnitude of our sin is what justifies the punishment that is required. With the very first sin that Adam and Eve committed, there was a sacrifice. It often gets overlooked, but it's kind of snuck in there. 
one of the first things that God does in response to Adam and Eve's sin is that he sacrifices an animal and he makes them clothing to cover their nakedness. And from that time on, every sin that has, that has been carried out by mankind has required a sacrifice. And I think about one of the advantages, perhaps, that people had under the Old Covenant, under Old Testament law, is that when, in order to atone for their sin, that they literally had to take an animal and physically sacrifice it. Now, that was, that's very foreign to our culture today. And it's not something that we should be trying to do in, in any way, shape, or form. It was part of the Old Covenant. It was God setting the stage for the New Testament to show us what he was doing in Jesus Christ. But think about that for a minute. They would literally have to take an animal, and there were, there were strict stipulations onto the types of animals that they could sacrifice. And they would take that to the place of worship, to the tabernacle, and the priest would would lay his hand on the head of that animal before sacrificing it to transfer the sin. This is all symbolic, okay? To transfer the sin and the guilt of their sin onto that animal. And now that animal dies in the place of the person who had committed that sin. If every time you committed a sin against God, you had to kill an animal... Would it change the way you've used... This is why we do swear jars. (laughs) We do swear jars because if somebody wants to stop swearing, they say, well, every time I swear, I'm going to put a... Eventually, you're like, I'm sick of putting dollars in this jar all the time, right? And so it's the same concept. If there's a consequence that we can immediately experience, if there's a consequence that we see right away, if there's a consequence that, that is heavy enough, it makes us stop and think, hey, what I did had implications, What I did had consequences. What I did required a sacrifice. And so the Old Testament system is setting up for us this view that that sin means something. There's a cost. There's a cost associated with us sinning against God. And every sin must be forgiven by the shedding of blood. Thanks be to God that he decided once for all to pay for all sins with one sacrifice. He sent the the only person that could serve as the perfect offering. We could have... Any other human being could have taken Jesus' place in the cross and it would not have counted the way that Jesus' sacrifice counted. He sent his son. This is his plan of redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. That he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. This was God's plan. With all wisdom and understanding he sent his son to be the sacrifice. To pay the price for our sins. And he does it with his blood. He paid the highest price he could pay. He paid the highest price he could pay for your sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. If Jesus did not die, we would be dead in our sins. Didn't we just sing that? If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, think about that. If he did not go to the cross on our behalf, we would not have the forgiveness of our sins. But 
God's plan of redemption includes the forgiveness of our sins. It's what he, what he predestined to do. It's what he planned before time that he would send his son to pay the price for our sins. And by achieving our forgiveness on the cross, he makes it possible for us to be with him forever. And that is to his pleasure. He wants you with him. So much so that he sent Jesus to die die for your sins. That shows the riches of his grace because we're not that desirable. We're just not. We're, you know, marriage fleshes this out for us. You know, I'm pretty sure Kim doesn't want me living with her anymore. You know, we're we're just not all that great to be around. But yet God wants us with him. It shows the riches of His grace. It shows the glory of who He is. He has made known to us, verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ. Do you understand that this was an intentional plan thought out before time began to redeem us and to bring us to Him? That's God's plan of redemption. Next thing on your handout says, God's plan of redemption includes an inheritance beyond comparison. If we look at verses 12, I'm going to start in 11 and read 12. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Okay, this is, this is what we were talking about before of salvation present and salvation future. There are, in a sense, phases. This is my word, not, not God's word. In a sense, there are phases. There is a progression of our salvation, of our redemption. What we have now is the forgiveness of our sins. What we will have later is even greater. What God is going to do in this this is our inheritance that he speaks of, is that we will be transformed out of these miserable, broken bodies that want to sin, and we'll be transformed into new bodies, given new bodies, that will delight to serve and to worship and to enjoy God forever. That's going to be awesome. I mean, that's going to be really cool to have a body that doesn't, wrestle against God the way that these ones do. To have a new will, to, have the, to be totally free to just enjoy Him forever. Because it's the things that we do against Him that bring us displeasure. Though sometimes the Bible speaks of the, the pleasures of sin lasting for a season. There can be an immediate gratification for doing something against God's will. But ultimately it leads to our misery. It leads, it leads us away from God and actually takes away our joy in the long run. Well, there's coming a day when we will be transformed. We will receive an inheritance that is beyond comparison. The Bible even says that we will share in the inheritance of Jesus. That what he has rightfully earned as the Son of God, we will share in that inheritance. And then the next thing on the handout says that God's plan of redemption is sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe. In verses, let me give you a second to fill those in. I think I moved too quickly through the last one. God's plan of redemption is sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe. Then if we look at verse 13, it says, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. It's very important to understand that the gospel 
that God's plan of redemption is not applied to those who refuse to believe. It is contingent upon belief. It is contingent upon faith and trust. It is contingent upon us expressing in whatever way we are able that we believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins, and that in him we can have the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. When you believed. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. A down payment is something that is meant to bring two parties in a contract together in a way that it's generally accepted, we're going to finish this thing, right? And the down payment has to be valuable enough to give confidence and to give faith that one party is not going to walk away. The party making the promise. The party who's saying, I will follow through on this. In our case, this is between us and God. He has made a down payment to us, the Holy Spirit, and that down payment is meant to let us know that he's going to see this thing through. I'm going to give you a little bit now as a promise to you that I'm going to give you the rest later. We're getting ready to close on our, sell our, our house in Catanning. The buyer gave us what's called hand money. Hand money, uh, I don't know why it's called hand money. It never touched my hand. It's in an account. I, I haven't seen it yet. But hand money is a down payment. It's saying, I'm going to follow through on this. But what's interesting about uh, the way we do those deals generally here is the hand money was $1,000. Now, I don't know about you. $1,000 is a decent chunk of change, but... I could walk away from that. I could, I could, if, if, there, if at the end of the day, if things really weren't going the way I wanted them to, and I, and I just wasn't happy with the way things were happening, and I thought, you know what, we don't want that house after all. I think, I think we'll, just, we'll just take the loss and walk. I could do that. I mean, in, in the prospect of buying, you know, a, a home that's tens of thousands of dollars, What's $1,000? It's, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not that safe of a guarantee. What God gives is not $1,000. What God gives is not $10,000. It's not $100,000. It's not $100 million. It's not $100 billion. It's not $100 trillion. What God gives is himself. The down payment that he makes is himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit as a down payment. That is the strongest guarantee that could ever exist. I can't think of any... Is God going to say, nah, you know what, never mind. I'm not coming back for that. I'm not worried about it. We'll just, we'll just take the loss. Is he going to give away the Holy Spirit and not come back to finish the deal? He makes the strongest guarantee possible. He gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. Down payments are also meant to say, hey, there's more of this to come. It's not just, down payments aren't just saying, I'm just letting you know I'm going to follow through on this deal. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that, hey, there's a lot more of this to come. You're going to get a lot more of this. And so when God sends the Holy Spirit, he says, I got a lot more in mind. I got a lot more in store for this relationship. Now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And that's a down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession 
to the praise of his glory. And that's the next thing I want you to see on the handout. God's plan of redemption should result in praise. God's plan of redemption should result in praise. If we look, I want to go back to the first verse that we started with, and then I want to get, catch the end of the last verse, verse 14, and then as, as just a sample of what this passage has told us about praise. In verse 3, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Skip to verse 14, to the praise of his glory. That phrase, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is praise. It is praise. Blessed is God. That we don't, we don't, yeah, we use that word, but I don't know if we use it in the, in the same way that, it, that it's meant here. Blessed is God the Father of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is praise. This is Paul praising God for what he has done through his plan of redemption. It's Paul saying that God is worthy of praise. He is a good God. He is a God that should be worshipped. He is an amazing and awesome God. Blessed is he. And then he he goes on to, to describe God's plan of redemption. And he says this is to the praise of his glory. God's plan of redemption should result in praise. And so can I just say, if, if you have experienced God's plan of redemption, and if you haven't, if you're here today and, and you just haven't experienced the goodness of the gospel in your life yet, first of all, we're hoping that today is a new day, the beginning of your experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it will change your life, it will change your eternity, it will change the way you live your life here on earth, it will change everything, and you will be so glad that it did. But if you haven't experienced that yet, you're off the hook, okay? That's between you and God right now. But if you have experienced his gospel, in other words, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say I'm a believer in Jesus, this is between me and you. And I want to talk about this. If you have experienced is his goodness, then when we come together to sing his praises, don't you dare stand there silent. If you have experienced God's redeeming grace, then you've got something to sing about. You've got an obligation to bring him praise when you come here. You've got a duty to worship him. And it is our pleasure, it is our joy to come into his presence and to sing about how great he is. Now listen, you can do that any way that fits your personality. I'm not saying you got to jump up and down. I'm not saying you got to raise your hands. I'm not saying you need to scream at the top of your lungs, but you better be praising. You better be worshiping Jesus. Because he's worthy of that. He has secured for us through his redemption the forgiveness of our sins. He has bought for us an eternal inheritance and given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. We ought to praise him. Now, again, I'm I'm not... I'm generally... um, I'm pretty reserved... As a person, um, I, I, I'm just not super expressive in, in, uh, in my emotions a lot of times. Um, but I really do my best to, to 
let that all out when I'm, when I'm praising him. But I don't want you to feel any obligation to do that in any particular way. Some of my deepest moments of praise have been quite stoic. I mean, just if you, if you see me standing here like this, don't think I'm not praising. And if I see you standing here like this, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to think you're not praising. You can be praising in a lot of different ways. But we should be praising. We should, when we come together, there should be an overflow of, of, of joy toward the gospel. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of our praise. And so his plan of redemption should result in praise. But let me say this, because I think this is even more important. True praise is when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We talked about this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Our true act of worship is to live our lives as a sacrifice for God. It's not just coming together once a week and singing praises, though I commend that. and I want to call you to that. I want to invite you to join me in doing that. But more importantly is how we walk out of here and live the rest of our lives. If you just sing on Sunday, but you don't live your life for him the rest of the week, that's not true worship. The Bible tells us that much. True worship is a living sacrifice. True worship is that we give our lives to service to him. That we live our lives on mission for him. True worship requires more than just an hour or, you know, a little bit longer than that for us. An hour and a half on Sunday morning. True worship requires lifelong devotion to Jesus. That's what it looks like to worship him. And so we want to make it conducive for worship here on Sunday. One of the reasons we turn the music up so loud is because I don't like, I'm not going to sing if I can hear myself sing. (laughs) If you can hear yourself sing, we don't have it up loud enough. Because, you know, a few of us have a pleasant voice. And you don't want to hear the guy behind you singing. And, you you know, we, we, we want people to be free. That's just, and that's just stylistic that's just what we do that's not right or wrong and you might prefer it to be lower you might prefer it to be louder you might prefer it not it doesn't matter those are preferences those are just preferences but the reason we do it is because we want you to be able to worship we want you to be free to praise him when you come together here on sundays all right then finally the last thing on the handout god's plan of redemption should be declared and demonstrated by us to the world God's plan of redemption should be declared and demonstrated to us by the world. If you've been here a while, that should sound familiar. That is our mission statement, that we want to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption in Jesus. That's our mission. That's why we exist. We want to declare it by speaking it and, and by proclaiming it through any means that God may give us. That might be through our Facebook page. That might be through the preaching on Sundays. That might be through singing. That might be through in two weeks. By the way, we're going to go to Freeport. Um, there's some sort of Halloween festival thing happening uh, the weekend of October 5th. And we've been given an opportunity to take our worship team and to play Sunday afternoon, October 5th, uh, from 3 to 5. And so we're going to be out in the community. That's an opportunity to declare God's plan of redemption. But we don't want to just declare it. We want to also demonstrate it. We want to act out the plan of redemption in 
any way possible. So that means loving our community and serving our community. It means meeting the needs of our community. It means getting out there and saying, hey, Jesus left heaven to come here to save us. And that is the example that we follow. So we leave the comfort of our church and our home to go into our community to pursue the lost. That's what he did. That's what we do. God's plan of redemption should be declared and demonstrated by us to the world. This is the mission that he has given to the church. Let me show you two very familiar passages of scripture. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Jesus came near and said to them, This is Jesus speaking to his followers after his resurrection. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has given his marching orders. He's made, he has explicitly stated what he wants us to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to observe everything I have commanded. And remember, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. Those are his marching orders. That is what he has commissioned us to do. And so that's what we seek to do. That's what it means to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption. Acts 1.8, God declares that we will be his witnesses. He says in verse Uh, In verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem was their immediate context. Judea and Samaria was the surrounding area. And he said, don't stop till you get to the ends of the earth. Don't stop till you've reached everybody. That is for us as well today. We are his witnesses. We are his witnesses. When he saved you, he did not immediately take you into heaven. He left you here on earth for a purpose. And that purpose is to obey the great commission, to go and make disciples, to baptize and to teach, and to be his witnesses. That's why you're here. That's why you are still on this earth. And that's why we exist as a church. This is what we must do. We must declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption to the world. It has to happen. if, If we don't do that, then we didn't do anything that we were here to do. One hundred and fifty thousand people within twenty minutes of where you're sitting right now, most of whom who do not know Jesus as Savior, most of whom don't even have a decent understanding of what the gospel message is. One hundred and fifty thousand. We could get we could reach them all by driving no more than twenty minutes. That's the mission he has given us. If not us, then who? If not here, then where? And if not now, when? He has given us this mission. He has declared that we will be his witnesses. We must declare and demonstrate his plan of redemption to the world. We must let them know. It's why we exist. It's why you exist as a believer. And it's why we exist as a church. So let's do it. I don't want Redemption Church to be another Sunday morning option 
for those who already know Jesus in this community. Let me say it, let me restate that. I don't want Redemption Church to just be another, I don't think there's anything wrong with options. I don't think there's anything wrong with multiple churches in an area. Because I think people are different and they're reached by different things. And, you know, you, you might grow here in ways that you weren't growing somewhere else. Or you might leave here and grow somewhere else in ways that you weren't growing here. That's fine. That's the way the body works. I'm okay with that. And I'm okay if you don't stay here forever. I'm okay if God has you here for a season to, to do something in your life. And then he sends you somewhere else to take that and to, to move on. No big deal. Just keep tithing here after you leave. Just keep, you can mail the checks in. It's fine. No, no, I'm just kidding. But I didn't pick my family up and move them out of a town that we loved into a town that we also love, by the way, and change everything that was familiar to us because I just wanted the Christians in this town to have another church to go to. I don't think Jesus would ever call me to do that. And I don't think Jesus would ever call you to do that. I think what Jesus has called us to do is clear in Scripture that we are to go and make disciples, that we are to baptize new believers. We're to bring new brothers and sisters into the family. We're supposed to declare this message of his gospel that though we are sinners, Jesus Christ came from heaven, the Son of God. He died in our place on the cross. He took upon himself the penalty for our sin. And when, with his dying breath, he, he, he cried out, it is finished, meaning he has done it all. There is nothing left for you to do in terms of your salvation except for one thing, and that is to believe to believe and to receive Jesus, that is the message that he has given us. And now he says, now that I've done that, you go and tell them. And you go and make disciples. You are my witnesses. And that's why Redemption Church exists. Because there's people within 150,000 of them within 20 minutes of here who don't know Jesus. And we want them to know. We want them to have the burden of their sin lifted from their soul for all of eternity to experience the grace and the love that we have experienced. So let me ask you two questions. Have you put your trust in God's plan of redemption, which is Jesus? Have you put your trust in him personally? Have you made the decision, I believe that Jesus died for me and I trust in him to be my savior? If you haven't done that, are you ready to do that today? And if so, let's do it right now. And if there's anything that you're hung up on that you want to talk about, you say, you know what, I'm really thinking about that, but I don't know about this or I don't know what to do about that, then you talk to us. Grab somebody that you know is following Jesus. Grab me, whatever, and say, hey, I need to talk. I think I'm ready to do that, but. But if there are no buts, If you're ready now, if you're just ready to receive Jesus, I want you to do that before we leave, and I'll give you an opportunity to do that in just a minute. But let me speak to the church. If you have already done that, will you join us in declaring and demonstrating God's plan of redemption to this world? We don't need any more spectator Christians. We need soldiers who are ready to die on the battlefield. 
We need people who are willing to step up, say, I will give of my time, I will give of my talent, and I will give of my treasure to see the mission go forward. That's what we need. And I want to call you to that, and I want to invite you to join us. I want to invite you to be a part of Redemption Church and to declare this message to this community. And as God gives us the ability to even go beyond this community and plant other churches around this region and around the world, that's our vision. And if you're in, I want you to be all in. Not for me, not for this church, but for Jesus. As the worship team comes up and gets ready to lead us, I want to go back to those of you who are perhaps saying, you know what, I'm ready. I want, I want Jesus to be my Savior. As we go ahead, just close our eyes, just so there's a little bit of privacy here. If you want Jesus to be your Savior and you're ready to believe and trust in Him today, would you just let Him know right now? Just, just let Him know in your own words, Jesus I want you to save me. And now I want to pray with you. You can, you can use my words, you can use your own, but let's go to him together with that very request. Jesus, we know we're sinners. We know that we need you. We believe that you died on the cross for us to pay for our sins and to save us to be with you for eternity. Today we trust in you. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. We ask that you would put the Holy Spirit in our lives as a down payment. And that you would use us in your will and in your mission to declare and demonstrate the gospel right here. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.